Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. For the Newsman Server, I'm Don Vaughn, your host for this episode of Under the Dome for the week of Monday, February 6, 2023. This month on Under the Dome, we're going to celebrate Black History Month by taking a closer look at Black history, Black lawmakers, and legislation in North Carolina. On today's episode, I have two guests who are state lawmakers from Durham, Representative Vernetta Alston and Senator Natalie Murdoch, who are both Democrats. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having us, Don. Looking forward to the conversation. Uh, so I want to start talking about both of you growing growing up and when you first learned about Black history, about, I don't remember, Black History Month, or about just, just history and realizing that this is also... Um, a different significance with Black history and just from in school? I mean, was it talked about in school? Was it like later as an adult? What do you what do you remember if, if each of you want to talk a little bit about, about what you learned growing up? Uh, Representative Alston, if you want to go first. Well, sure. Thanks, Don. Um, well, you know, I'm from North Carolina, you know, from from Durham and, you know, almost always from, you know, in and around Durham County. Um, so I think from an early age, I've felt and, and I think appreciated kind of, kind of the history that my family has in this area and, and kind of why it's um, the aspects of my history that are related to kind of race and the history of race in this country. Um, in terms of kind of when I remember understanding Black History and, and Black History Month, you know, I, I wouldn't take my memory as any historical fact. <laughs> in terms of what I remember from my childhood, um, but certainly it was, I'm sure, thinking of Black History Month as this, like, time of celebration and of education likely happened in school, you know. Um, and I think my appreciation of Black history came, like, again, just from my own family. Well, tell us about, tell us about your family growing up in Durham. Well, I know it's Durham and then Carrie also, but your grandmother uh, is from Haiti neighborhood. Yeah, so my mom grew up in Haiti. My dad grew up kind of near Central, um, off of Plum Street, and both all of my you know, my grandparents lived in Durham. My and grandfather was uh, a chauffeur and a butler for a big doctor. Um, I had my grandmother was a, a domestic worker for uh, two prominent families who lived in Trinity Park and. Um, and another grandparent who's a farmhand, the other would be at a daycare around the Fayetteville Street. So, um, you know, that, that history is really rich, but I mean, as I'm sure Senator Burdock can relate, you know, my, we can trace at least parts of our family background, dated back six, seven generations, you know, just a few miles from where I live now. And, you know, that makes, it's, it's a complicated history, um, but one that I, I have a lot of, I feel like gratitude that I, um, have the kind of proximity that I have to it because I think it forces a kind of um, uh, appreciation, but also uh, accountability and uh, reflection kind of on where we've been and where we still need to go. Senator Murdoch, what do you, do you remember anything formal in school? Was it just yeah. she got older? 
Yeah, um, just like Representative Austin, deep, deep ties to North Carolina, all the way back to slavery, actually, to Orange County, North Carolina. Um, my grandparents are late to rest in Orange County. And for me, being born and raised in Greensboro, just like so many other cities in North Carolina, just have direct ties, particularly to the civil rights movement. So grew up definitely knowing about the ANT4 and the Woolworth sit-ins. Two of my aunts actually left high school to march with them. So I reflect on that February 1 and think about the fact that they were a junior and a senior in high school and left the high school that I attended years later, um, James B. Dudley High School. And my grandmother is a black history person in her own right, actually started a cafeteria strike in Guilford County Schools which led to them, to their wages being raised. I think they were making a dollar and some change. And after months and months of protests, they were able to get up to, to $3. So was always aware of, of their history. But um, formally for me, it was being that I was born and raised in Greensboro. Uh, there was a very popular summer enrichment camp at North Carolina A&C State University. And so I went there probably first grade through maybe even fourth or fifth. And we learned not only African-American history, but African history. That's when I learned about Kwanzaa, when I learned, honestly, history that I wasn't getting in my schools. There were specific projects that helped me to connect to very direct historians. Um, uh, Madam C.J. Walker, I remember I was really excited about a project that I did about her and um, some other notable folks here in North Carolina, but definitely for me. That summer enrichment camp was where I was really extremely proud of Black history and African American history. It's interesting that both of you mentioned your grandparents. What did you learn from your grandparents? Well, Pitt, maybe I was going to add this and think it might answer your question too. Um, in thinking about Black History Month, a way that I feel like I've been like, kind of directly impacted by my own experiences with my grandparents um, and also just what I know of them and their lives um, is that, you know, during Black History Month, we rightly celebrate so many leaders, so many people who broke barriers, who were firsts, um, were very accomplished in their lives. And I think that is absolutely essential to do and to celebrate in Black History Month. But I think because of where I've, you know, where I've come from, where my, my family and my kin have come from, um, it, it feels equally as important to lift up, excuse me, the incredibly important contributions of just of black workers, of folks who, you know, kind of gave a lot, who weren't, you know, they weren't bestowed with a lot of titles or credentials or, you know, accomplishments that we would kind of read on paper and be in awe of, but uh, who, led, who lived all inspiring lives just, just by virtue of their sacrifice, what they struggled with day in and day out um, and the groundwork they laid so that, you know, folks like myself could kind of be here in this position today. So I think kind of celebrating those folks and those communities is, is just as important in Black History Month. Did any of your grandparents um, live to see what, what where you all are now? Uh, not where I am, um, but the walk-in, I will never forget how proud my grandmother was when Barack Obama was elected president. I swear, everywhere she went, she wore an Obama for president t-shirt. She believed before I did, you know, I, like a lot of folks just said, I don't know, is America really ready for this? Um, so I'm thrilled that she was still here to to see that. But I, I can't imagine what any of my grandparents would, would think about, wow, you know, their granddaughter is, is a, a state senator. They knew I was politically active, but 
I don't think they would have envisioned this, but it's humbling, you know, I think for both of us having ties all the way back to, you know, pre-Reconstruction era right here in North Carolina, it, it is um, something that I remind myself all the time of how, no matter how tough it gets, how not only fortunate we are, um, how blessed we are, and knowing we really have a duty to serve because of our deep ties to this state. We love this state and that we deserve to have full access to the power that we have and the influence we have as legislators every day. Um, you both are um, were born after the civil rights movement. Uh, you're the younger end of the of the lawmakers. How much did your grandparents or others talk about uh, what they had to do? You talked about the workers. Was it just kind of just an everyday conversation? Did they, um, you know, a lot of people when they when they get older, they want to reflect on their lives more and talk to family and tell tell their stories more. Was there any any of that from from any of them on either side? Or you saw your grandmother in Greensboro. You said you knew it while while everything was going on. Absolutely. For me, I, I lean into it all the time. I, I speak about it often because I always center my work with the work that they did. I mean, even my father, uh, we both unfortunately have lost our, our fathers, but he was NAACP Man of the Year um, in Greensboro. So they, they speak of those stories often. And I think really for, for us, like you said, we're in that generation where we weren't physically there during the civil rights movement. Of course, we know it happened. We're also serving after leaders. I mean, especially in Durham, you know, you have uh, Mickey Michaud and Floyd McKissick, who are served right after, whose father, all those iconic photos with Dr. King, his dad's right there marching with him. He's in the African-American Smithsonian in D.C. So I think we still grapple with what does the movement look like today? What does it look like to serve in these spaces where we didn't grow up in segregated schools, we benefited from all of the work that they did. But more than anything now, uh, with the current political climate, still see we have so much farther to go. Um, so we're not only, you know, the torch has definitely been passed and we're carrying the mantle, but I think we're looking, we're still grappling with when we have power, what do we do with it? How do we share it? How do we really work to get better opportunities and more equality for all people of color. I want to, uh, we need to take a break in a minute, but before we do, I want to talk about women. You talked about the names that are lifted up in history, and then a lot of in, in, in Durham's Black history, uh, it's men who were like the power centers with education and business, and they're the ones um, that have the schools named after them and everything like that. And and women now, but not, you know, not as much much historically. So when we come back from the break, I want to ask you all about when you saw that there was a path for for women and and who inspired you. So we'll be right back with uh, more conversation with Senator Murdoch and Representative Alston and our headliners of the week and lots more that will fit in. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. 
You're listening to Under the Dome. I'm News and Observer Politics reporter Don Vaughn. Here with two state lawmakers, Representative Fernando Alston and Senator Natalie Murdoch, both Democrats from Durham. Before the break, we were talking about uh, black lawmakers, women black lawmakers in particular, and I wanted to hear what they thought about who's gone before and paving the way for them and, uh, you know, in the future for um, for other women that, that want to run for office. So either one of you have, have thoughts on that about, um, I, I've mentioned on the podcast multiple times, I used to cover Durham government. Uh, I covered Representative Alston when she wasn't even city council member Alston yet for her running. So uh, let's, let's start with you then. Why? Uh, why did you want to run for office? Where did you see that this was something that, that you should do? And then wanting to go from council to the General Assembly? I think, you know, given the, the theme of the conversation, what I can say uh, is when I thought about running, um, my wife and I just had her first child. Um, and so I'd say, well, while I was thinking about it, it was like, you know, kind of newborn to three, three and a half months. And it certainly... It crossed my mind a lot that it, you know, running for office, whether win or lose, it was something that I could demonstrate to her I could do, and that my extension she could do, that any girl in her generation could do. Um, and I also, I thought about, you know, my grandmother, but also my mom, and uh, I think I naturally had this impulse to want to make them proud, you know, and to... to do justice, sell their hard work, and again, the sacrifices that they made over the course of their lives to kind of put me in this position. When you're on city council, I remember you mentioned workers earlier. You were uh, part of the the Work Durham Workers Commission and and getting that going when you are when you were on council too. Right, and I yeah, I was I was very grateful to 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 work with my colleagues in the council and the administration, and certainly a lot of folks in the community to 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 start that commission. Um, it hopes that it gives people a voice, and you know, I, I, I'm not up to date on the work that they're doing now, but I, I recall the, the conversations that they were having about just fighting for workers' rights and to, to keep those issues at the forefront of the, really the, the business communities, you know, kind of minds uh, was really, really important, particularly at a time of such intense growth in Durham. I remember you were in council and you came over for a press conference about about labor, and it was a, a local yeah. state crossover episode of the General Assembly and everything. So, Senator Murdoch, you started in uh, local government at, at the county level first. Why yeah. why did you want to run? Who did you see ahead that uh, that you know you felt either directly encouraged you or or and and coming after? Yeah, really. For me, even before being a soil and water commissioner, even when I lived in Asheville, I lived in Asheville for five years and intern for the city of Asheville, worked for a council of government. And really for me, the issue was transportation. People forget how bipartisan transportation is, how political it is. And so I staffed a board, which fun fact, um, that is how I first met Senator Julie Mayfield. Um, she was actually on our citizen advisory committee. So now I serve with her in the Senate. But um, I just always going to county commission meetings and city council meetings and, and getting more active. So Asheville was actually the first time I was approached to run for office. Someone approached me in Asheville to run for city council, but I didn't think I would settle down and remain in Asheville long term. So fast forward to was still in transportation in Durham at the time was working on the light rail project. So I was in the community out there active again, was just catching up with a resident in East Durham. And I thought we were just going to hang out and I was going to get updates on the community. And almost fell through the floor when he said, I really think you should run for Durham City Council. 
So didn't do that. Years later, my mentor, who's now deceased, Brother Ray, was soil and water supervisor. And he approached me to run for his seat. And since he had served for 20 plus years, I could not say no. And was very comfortable and happy as a soil and water supervisor. And then in redistricting, I was no longer in Rep. Morris seat or Senator Woodard. I was in what is the old Senate District 20 by one precinct and was already really active with the Durham Democrats. I was first vice chair. So the statistics held up for me. It was about the eighth or 10th phone call before I took it seriously. At first, I just said, I'm fine where I am and was more than a lot of folks didn't even know. I was working on other projects where I was already going to the General Assembly a decent amount, just advocating for various issues, just as an independent person that was passionate about things. And I think when I finally decided to run, it really struck me that we have these historic leaders in Durham, but at the time of only having two senators, we didn't have a woman representing Durham. And the old Senate District 20 was 52% female. So I thought it was really odd that we didn't have uh, a woman that was gonna file and run. And so I said, I'm, I'm more than happy to do that. And also being that I was unmarried at the time, was I think 34, 35, and knew that voice was needed in the General Assembly. So it was myself, Representative Austin and Senator Salvador, there were no black women under 40 in the General Assembly. And we have student loan debt, we've dealt with multiple recessions right after graduation. So we do have a different perspective that is very relevant and those voices were needed in the General Assembly. And so thrilled to uplift those issues that so many women across the state are facing every day. You didn't have the easiest primaries, I recall. No, I did not. <laughs> People are listening to the, uh, I, I think everyone knows that Durham is a majority Democrat town. So a lot of the yeah. politics happens during the primary or before the primary. Even, yeah. Or, oh, yeah. Yeah. And uh, that's a... Uh, I'm, I'm sorry to report, I no longer fall in the under 40 category. <laughs> no, I look back on this. Yeah. It was fun. Yeah. I don't either. So yeah, we still, we, still, we still claim it. But I mean, but, but to that primary, back to the numbers, people just didn't know that many women were in that district. And when I ran the numbers, I said, if I do well with women, I can win this. And back to my transportation background, I always crunch the numbers. You know, Stacey Abrams said it best. You don't just need a path to win, you need the math to win. And I knew numerically if women turned out in large numbers, and you see that in Durham, we have so many um, women serving as judges and various levels of government. And that's a big part of why is women are very, very reliable voters and they want to be represented because they've waited so long when they had no representation. When you walk the halls of the General Assembly, um, we recently lost the first black woman to serve in the General Assembly, um, Dr. Annie Kennedy, and to go back to that portrait and see no women and then no black women and then she finally appears, um, it, it's, it's long past time. And I'm glad that now for the first time in the Senate have a female majority in the Democratic caucus. Why do, you, why do either one of you think there aren't more black women in the House or Senate? I, I think there's so many factors. It yes. is really hard. It, it is it is it is not easy. Um, I mean, even me being single working and legislating is no joke. <laughs> it is hard. I support myself. Um, I don't have anyone to share bills with. Um, so it's challenging. You have to have a flexible job. And for me, I was consulting on my own since 2017. And if it wasn't for that, I don't think I would have run. And ironically, already had an office on Fayetteville Street. So I knew in session I can run down the street and still work, but particularly for um, 
um, our legislative colleagues that are parents and, you know, partners. It, it, it is just a lot to, to balance. And then the barriers are that much greater if you're a black woman with having access to the resource and capital you need to even raise the money to run, let alone to have a flexible job that actually allows you to serve since we pay our legislators a whopping $13,900 a year. So that's why it took so long to get black women under 40 because of those barriers and challenges. Yeah, yeah, that's, yeah, I was going to comment on that, particularly on that, the campaign side and how, how difficult that is. I mean, in any circumstance, but I think given the, the, the barriers that so many uh, black people, particularly black women, experience in life, and then you kind of layer on the, the constraints and difficulties of running competitive campaigns and, mm-hmm. and winning, you know, these types of seats, it's, it's, it's a challenge. Mm-hmm. And it's constant when you're running every two years. So you have to have a life where it fits every two years. Was there a moment that you had just thinking yourself that, oh, of how you are, you're talking about, you know, parents and grandparents, but yourself as a role model where either someone said that to you or you just saw a field trip of kids coming and knowing that they saw you or anything like that. Is, has, was there any moment like that that you, that you like paused for a minute? You thought about it? Uh, I don't think about it regularly. I mean, I, I certainly appreciate those opportunities. I think you, everyone, everyone, everyone around this table probably knows of the um, unfortunate Black History Month event I had in 2019. And I think that was one of the first real, really like impactful moments for me on, on my potential as a role model and um, the way that uh, I think the very positive way that folks in my community perceive me and the, the role that I play. And um, this, our connection, um, in particular with young people, um, the, the real power I think that we hold and the opportunity that we have on, uh, when I had that meetup uh, incident where I was you know, disinvited from the Black History Month event, and you know, the kids j- just in droves really spoke out and spoke out, and uh, that was really powerful for me. Do you want to, I guess people that maybe weren't aware of the, or the quick version of it, so. I don't really want to, but it seemed relevant. Um, why don't you, why don't you summarize it? I summarize it. I was powering city council at the time, so you were a student at Immaculate, right? So Immaculate Conception Catholic Church in Durham had had Representative Alston, which is a city council member, as a Black History Month speaker, and within the, um, I don't remember the exact specifics of, of who within the, the Catholic Church hierarchy decided uh, that they did not want an LGBTQ Black History Month speaker and disinvited uh, then city council member Alston. Uh, the students uh, were not happy with that. The families were not happy with that. There's, I believe, a few weeks of, of drama. And then uh, what would tell, tell us what the what the result was at the end. And the result was I worked with uh, a number of the parents who had formed a, uh, I forget what they called themselves, essentially a committee of folks who were tasked with uh, planning the programming for Black History Month. Uh, so I worked with them and ultimately with the church administration um, to come back and speak to the, the as many folks from the school community and the church community um, as wanted to hear what I had to say um, a few weeks after, um, uh, which was kind of early in March. So had a great conversation. There was some singing by you know, uh, groups of the children and um, church parishioners, and uh, it was a, a good evening and... Um, I think the right conclusion to that whole ordeal. That was a role model moment at the local government level, which is a lot closer to the people 
in a lot of ways because they see and interact with you that you may not always at the at the legislative building on Jones Street. It's mm-hmm. a little bit like a fortress sometimes. Mm-hmm. But I mean, that was, I mean, I really pushed to to have that subsequent event, mm-hmm. I, I think because of what, you know, we just talked about, and that's that I wanted to be, I wanted to show the kids that, you know, they should have access to me, mm-hmm. <laughs> they should have access to my message, mm-hmm. and that persistence in that sort of circumstance is important when people are trying to silence you. And so, you know, I think that was a really formative moment for me as a local leader. Mm-hmm. So, Rick, did you that want to think of any moments um, in your... I'm trying to think, how long have you been in this? Has it been a couple, it's been it a couple been, of years? It's been three years, April 1st. Mm-hmm. But um, for me, what was humbling to me and surprising, it actually started with Soil and Water. I distinctly remember campaigning for Soil and Water Supervisor in Durham. And it was a young black student in high school. And she said, oh, my goodness, I've seen you and, you know, so excited to support you and signed up to volunteer for my campaign. So I think at that time, knowing that even it, with the office that's on the bottom of the ballot, people see you and they follow you. And uh, I always tell folks that you don't know who's watching you, but someone is always watching you, but in a good way. And it makes it more attainable. It, it really helps people to be seen. Um, they're just across the state. I do events uh, across the state and I'm just really humbled by how many folks are inspired by knowing not only that we're here, but we're speaking to issues that they care about, which is why representation really matters of, um, you know, since we are of a different era, we'll shed more light on issues that other folks may not, um, it may not be as pressing to them. I mean, even when you look at, you know, our battle to have the right to say what we want to do with our bodies, it, it's relevant to us when we're still at that age where, I mean, it, it still impacts us, you know. So even when it comes to more folks that are of, you know, childbearing age, you're going to be that much more passionate about those issues because you're still fighting them every day. So it, it, it really, really um, means a lot. And it's something that I take seriously, you know, which is why I always love going to schools, um, love working with students, love when I receive those those letters from students as young as elementary school and, and go into their schools because they, they need to see themselves in government. Uh, I want to talk quickly before we move on to, to Headliner and then a new segment that I've added when uh, lawmakers come on the show that um, it's very inside baseball. You'll appreciate the service listening. <laughs> that's been time at the legislative building. But I want to talk quickly about two different things uh, reg- regarding legislation. It's been in multiple budgets. This is a budget season again. Uh, the African-American monument on the Capitol grounds was in the works installed by cultural resources. So just each of you quickly, do you think that I know that Freedom Park is a totally separate project blocks away, but the Capitol grounds does not have an African-Americans uh, monument that's been in the works and all the studies mm-hmm. and committees and everything for years. That background is there. So Senator Murdoch, do you think that's something that should be a priority or just like on the table for when when things work? What do you- it, it should. And, um, you know, have been on the Black Caucus Executive Board as a freshman. And so now um, as someone who served a little longer, to my knowledge, it's always been a priority for the Legislative Black Caucus. It will continue to be. I don't see why it would not be included. And we also provide our own budget request to the House and Senate. So definitely believe that we'll be in there. And I think it was a missed opportunity, I think, with the, the reckoning we've honestly had nationwide it really, really should be there. And again, so thankful for the financial report we received, support we received for Freedom Park, um, but also in our Capitol grounds, we have a right to see 
not only diversity reflected, but the people who were a part of building the state and, and making it great. So we, we really, really should have that physically reflected in our public spaces on Capitol grounds. Representative Austin, I can't agree more. I don't know that I have anything different to say. I absolutely should be something that is on the table that we consider seriously and, and it elevate to a priority. Uh, I've read some of the uh, when the, the plans for that and the researchers determined that the most frequent or number one visitor to the Capitol grounds are students on yep. field trips. So since we're talking about education and work quick legislation, <laughs> I appreciate uh, both of both of your uh, time and, and talking about yourselves and, and everything else here. Uh, one thing that's going to be coming up this session that Speaker Moore has told me that he plans to bring back is the it's called the anti-critical race theory bill, or that's how it's been described. It basically regulates how race is taught in schools. Um, quickly, I just wanted to get each of you, uh, your takes on that and that coming up and potentially for if uh, Governor Cooper vetoes it, overrides, and, and how that could impact education. Representative Halston. Uh, sure. I th obviously, the, the type of legislation you're describing, um, we've seen before. It's dangerous. Um, our children, our students deserve to know the truth about our history. And, you know, it's ultimately a political um, distraction. Um, it's, this is something that's being manufactured uh, by the Republican Party and it has it's going to have real consequences uh, for our children, uh, for our teachers, uh, for our schools. Uh, at a time when we should be talking about the fact that you know, I think teacher vacancies have tripled in the last three years. Um, that, you know, our teachers are leaving in in something greater than droves. Uh, there are real crises uh, going on in our schools that need immediate attention. Senator Murat. Um, agree 1,000%. I think particularly coming after the height of COVID where our school systems were pushed to the brink. Parents were, teachers were, students were. We know so many of them not only were left behind, um, but enrollment is down in a number of our school systems. So I think we, we need to really focus on investing in our public schools and supporting our teachers. And it is a part of a national strategy. Instead of really funding the schools, and ponying up the money we need to really pay for things that the gaps that we know that are there. We have a court ordered mandate through the Leandro where they've laid out how we haven't been investing in our schools the way that they should. And both of us represent Durham. It's particularly an issue in these rural communities. And what, what baffles me is to not address the issue when rural students are really, really the ones that are gonna be left behind if we don't address these gaps and issues. And so to continue to say you want to engage in, in culture wars and really whitewash history when we really should be focused on supporting our children. Suicide rates are also through the roof. Let's address mental health issues. Let's address the infrastructure problems that we have with so many of our schools. Um, so I, I just don't don't think that that should be the top priority for um, the way that we we educate our children and we look forward to reminding folks that the American our American history isn't always pleasant and that's okay. Um, that's what what our teachers are trained to do to provide culturally appropriate curriculum and training um, that fits the, the age of that classroom. They're trained to do that and we need to allow those teachers to do their jobs. All right, probably something that we'll be talking a lot more about as the legislat legislative session continues. 
So I'm going to switch gears to something lighter. I decided that every time a lawmaker is on the podcast, I'm going to ask them what their favorite thing is at the legislative cafeteria. So any of you that spend time in the building, it's several hundred people spend time in the building, and sometimes there's one choice, and it's what's in the legislative cafeteria, although there is the snack, snack bar and over in the LOB. So Senator Murdoch, what's your what's your pick for the legislative cafeteria? What's your go-to item or when you're glad it's on the menu? Yeah, yeah. Sometimes the snack bar is as good as it gets when we don't have a lot of time. Learn the hard way to be more prepared by keeping good snacks in the office. But um, in the cafeteria, uh, when I am treating myself, it is the sweet potato casserole. Um, and even the, the fried chicken is actually very, very good. So I got a tip about that from uh, one of the veteran LAs when I arrived my first year. So those are my top two bits. I also like the fried chicken. <laughs> Representative Alston, when you get the cafeteria. First shout out to, the, to our cafeteria workers. Yes. Down at the Nano Assembly. Thanks for all you do. Um, usually if I'm eating in the cafeteria, I'm eating quickly. So the chicken, chicken salad sandwich on wheat, uh, lettuce and tomato. That's my go-to. Yeah, and the the small one that's like across the that's parking lot, and yeah. that those are some good sandwiches, yeah. and the fries with extra seasoning salt. All right, shout out to everyone <laughs> uh, that works at the legislative cafeteria. Uh, all right, so we're gonna end with our picks for headliner of the week. Uh, I'm going to go quick since I'm talking to two Durham lawmakers. Mine is Durham themed, and it's that beaver that showed up on the American <laughs> Tobacco campus. Uh, I think did the Bulls decide it was named Barry or something? I don't know, but it's so cute. And how did it get there? I don't know. Um, but that's it's just funny and like a very darn thing. And I understand the beaver is relocated, hopefully successfully, and is living out its happy life. And it should probably be the guest star at the beaver cream patch. It really should. It really should. <laughs> um, so mine is uh, Barry the American Tobacco Beaver in, in Durham. So... Uh, Senator Murdoch, what's your headline? Who or what is your headline? My headline of the week is the mysterious theft of our beautiful pink penguins by 21C Hotel. Not real penguins. Not real penguins. <laughs> Not real penguins, but they are iconic. They bring me great joy. And I was not happy with the fact that someone stole our beautiful penguins. I thought about it when I went there yesterday morning for a meeting. And I don't think folks have connected it to this national phenomenon of folks stealing animals in Texas. There were very rare exotic animals that were stolen from the zoo. So I don't know why folks want to terrorize our very special animals. We need to, to love them and allow them to live their best lives. Let them be. <laughs> Represent Alston, who or what is your headliner of the week? My, my headliner of the week are the Capel Brothers, um, uh, Capel, Capel's Revenge. I didn't watch the UNC Pitt game because I refused to, I still refuse to accept that Pitt is an ACC. Oh, <laughs> that's a threshold matter. Um, but yeah, you know, Jeff Capel took down the Tar Heels, which much respect. Jeff Capel, the former, uh, former, former yeah, point guard. Uh, and yeah, there's some, there's some additional, additional headlines, which I found entertaining. But yeah, just Capel's Revenge. Appreciate y'all and all you've done for North Carolina. <laughs> all right. We're recording this before you all will watch the Duke UNC game this weekend. But uh, whatever happens, go Duke. <laughs> all right. For the News and Observer, I'm Don Vaughn. Uh, thanks to Senator Murdoch, Representative Alston. And we'll talk to you next time. 
For more from our politics team, subscribe to the News and Observer at newsobserver.com slash subscribe. Follow us on Twitter at Under the Dome and NC Insider and sign up for our weekly political newsletter, also called Under the Dome, at newsobserver.com slash newsletters. Thanks for listening.